Hope you all saw in that psalm, God's faithfulness to a rebellious people. And when we look at Israel, we can look at ourselves and see God's faithfulness to, to us. And that's what I think about when I, when I was reading that psalm, all that God did for them. But God was always faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham, just as we learned uh, in the book of Nehemiah, which we just finished last week. Uh, God, Nehemiah was a sign of God's grace in continuing the nation of Israel and fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham, that all the nations of the world would be blessed uh, through him. God remembers his covenant. And he remembers his covenant that he has made with us. And we thank the Lord uh, for being faithful. Let us pray. Father, as we were just reading your word in Psalm 106, I begin to just think about how faithful you are as God. Well, one of your attributes is that of immutability, meaning that you do not change, that your character, your, nat your nature, your, your person cannot change. And Lord, because you are immutable, because you do not change, Lord, we can trust in you. We can depend on you. We can look to you, Lord, to always be faithful as you've always uh, have been. And so, Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We come to you, Father, as the one true God who is blessed forever. Asking you, Lord, to hear my prayer this morning. According to Christ and his finished work on the cross, his substitutionary death. Lord, you're such a great God. You're so wonderful. You're so lovely. You're so great, Lord. You're so much worthy of praise. And we are not. Lord, you alone are worthy. You alone created the heavens and the earth. And Lord, my prayer this morning as I open up is that you help us to cultivate a high view of you. That we have a high view of God. That we have a high view of our creator. Lord, I think in our culture, in our world, we have lost our spirit of worship of you. We have lost the essence of what it means to be still and know that you are God. Lord, those words mean nothing next to the self-obsessed culture in which uh, we live because the world tells us that we are God that we are our own gods that we are in charge of our own life that we are in control of our life and the outcomes to our life well we have lost that sense of wonder we have lost that sense of awe Lord the church has surrendered her once lofty and high concept of you and have substituted for something that is so low 
something that is so base as worshiping men, worshiping people, worshiping um, <clears throat> the things of this world. And Lord, we have not done this deliberately, but little by little and without knowing, Lord, we have slid in back from thinking highly of you, but instead having a low view of you. And Lord, as the great uh, preacher of the 20th century, the great theologian A.W. Tozer once said, he said, the low view of God has entertained almost all Christians in the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. Lord, because the church has lost her focus, the, the world has descended into even more and more chaos. When Christ called us in Matthew 5 to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Father, the church has forsaken that holy call. Lord, salt is meant as a preservative. It is meant to preserve. It doesn't mean that uh, there will never be evil in the world. But what that means that we are the solid earth, Lord, is that we are to preserve the world from further evil, from further deprivation, from, from further uh, going headlong into sin and rebelling against you. The, the church is supposed to sound the alarm, to call people to repentance, to call people to believe your word, which is truth. But Lord, sadly, the church has forsaken her responsibility to proclaim truth and has rather acquiesced or given in to the lies of the culture. And look at where we are right now as a result of it. Lord, I pray that this not be so with the living church. I pray that this may not be so with all of our Sister Churches, Grace Fellowship, Anderson Bible, Redeemer, Christian Fellowship, Mountain View, Iron City Baptist, First Baptist, Zionville. Lord, I pray that will not be said so of our churches. And here at our church, Lord, may it not be said among us that, that we exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship created things rather than the creator God was best forever Lord Lord give us give us a backbone to stand for your truth to stand for you and how you have revealed yourself in your word which is the word of truth give us gospel boldness with compassion but Lord give us boldness nonetheless to proclaim your truth because Lord we must think rightly about you we must think rightly about your word. We must think right about your nature and your character and who you are. And we must project that out into the broader world. Lord, you're so worthy of worship. You're so worthy of praise. And Lord, forgive us for times when we've created idols and said, this is our God. These are our gods. 
as opposed to acknowledging and worshiping you, the one true God. Lord, we pray for Sister Dolores this morning. That you be uh, with her and heal her, the swelling that's going on in her body. That you be with her and comfort her right now in her time of need. That you may strengthen her by your spirit and encourage her by your spirit. Lord, we thank you for uh, protecting uh, Charity from worse happening to her in accident and, and bringing her out, Lord, and her acknowledging that it was you who was with her and those other two girls also. And, Lord, that you continue to heal her and she goes to the doctor, uh, the orthopedic doctor, that they may find out what's going on with her and, and, and help her to, to heal Lord, we thank you for uh, blessing Ms. Ruby with successful neck surgery. Continue to heal her, Lord, also. And, Lord, we just pray that you be with all of us here, the different concerns that we may have in our minds, that, Lord, we may cast them upon you, that we may carry them to you, knowing, knowing Lord, that you're, you're always with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, that is one of the the great assurances in all of scripture that no matter what may come you are with us we can cast our burdens on you we can trust you because Lord you would do it you will never leave us we can be content Lord in every situation that you will never leave us that it is impossible for Christ to desert believers that there's absolutely no way whatsoever that Christ will leave us Lord let us hold to this hope as we go through this world as we go from day to day on our jobs and in our homes and in our schools and out in the public square Lord may we always hold forth to that precious truth that it is impossible for Christ to leave us and desert us because he himself promised, as the writer in Hebrews 13 and 6 so eloquently says, that I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. Whom shall I fear? What can man do unto me? Lord, may we hold forth that precious promise as we go throughout our days in this world. May that encourage us. And Father, as we get ready to prepare to hear from heaven this morning, to hear from you as we consider the life of Christ this Sunday, the death of Christ next Sunday, and the resurrection of Christ the Sunday after, Lord, as we look toward the cross and the resurrection, Lord, center our minds, center our thoughts, center our hearts on Christ and what his death means, what his life means first, what his death means and what his resurrection means. We, we say it all the time, Lord, but we rarely meditate on and think about the implications of it. I pray, Lord, just for today that you fill me with your spirit to preach this text well. And, Lord, I pray that you send the spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning, that Jesus is God. He is God. 
In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning again. We're going to spend the next three weeks. We just finished Nehemiah last week, and we're going to spend the next three weeks pointing toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what some people call Easter Sunday. This week, we're going to look at the life of Christ, showing that Jesus is God. Then next Sunday, we're going to look at the death of Christ. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ. So our foundational text is John, the 14th chapter. So this is a foundation that we're going to start with, but we're going to have plenty of uh, other scriptures to consider this morning as we look at the fact that Jesus is God. You have some people who deny the truth of the scripture, those who reject the Christ of God, who say Jesus never said that he was God. You hear some people say that. But I contend with you that he is God. And this foundational text right here in John 14 um, will help us get started on that. So beginning at verse 7. Once I get to it, because I was actually about to read Luke 14. <laughs> like, no, that's not it. Okay, John 14, verses 7 through 11. In context here, looking back at the, this was the upper room, part of the upper room discourse, which began uh, in John 13 when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. This was the night before he was to be uh, given up to be crucified. Uh, and this was the, what uh, theologians call the upper room discourse because he met with the disciples in the upper room and spent his last hours with them, ministering to them and preparing them for his departure. Uh, that's why it is called the upper room discourse. So this 14th uh, verse, 14th chapter, in this, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he begins it by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Why did he say that? Because the disciples were concerned because Jesus was going away from him. From them, rather. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Okay, then he goes on to say he's going to prepare a place for them, and he will come again and take them to himself. And then Thomas asked him, uh, how will he know, how will they know where he is going? And how would they know the way? Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. Okay? And this is where we pick up in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So from now on, they've seen Christ. So who also have they seen? God the Father. He's going to explain himself. As Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has what? 
seeing the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Because the works that Christ did had to be from God because they were supernatural in nature. They could not have been done by a mere man. So Jesus lays this foundation here. Saying that he is the father. That he is God the father. That he is God himself. A.W. Tozer said in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is a book on the attributes of God. And this is a great book, by the way. He says, this is one of the great questions, great quotes that, that uh, are attributed to A.W. Tozer. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He continues, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen higher above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, base meaning lowly or meaningless, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. He says, for this reason, the gravest question before the church, the big C church, he's talking about the body of Christ, is always God himself. And the most obvious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but also the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech she can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God and I'm read this last part of this quote here he says we were able to extract from any man a complete answer to this question what comes into your mind when you think about God we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man or that woman. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. So A.W. Tozer here saying in the opening chapter of his book, what we think about God matters. What we think of God does matter matter 
It matters in all of our life, not just in our, quote, church life. What we think about God will determine how we raise our children, how we work, how we treat our bodies, how we treat other people, how we love our husbands and, and wives and our children and our parents. What we think of God matters in all of those areas. It matters what type of student we will be in school, what type of teacher we will be in school. What we think of God matters for all of our life. So the question I ask you this morning is, what do you think of Christ? What think you of Christ? Who is Jesus to you? Who and what you think of Christ is evidence of whether your conversion is true or not. What we believe about Jesus determines our morality, our meaning, and our eternal destiny. It does matter. It determines what we will do with our life. <coughs> Whether we look within to ourselves or look out and up to God for our purpose. If we have a wrong view of Jesus, we're going to look at ourselves with a look in. As the world says, pointing to yourself. That self is the most important thing that matters. What we think of Christ determines whether we will spend our eternity separated from him because we did not confess, repent, and turn to him as our Savior. Or whether we will be with him in all eternity because we accepted his once for all sacrifice for our sins as our means of salvation. So these are massive implications when it comes to what we think of Christ and who Christ is. This question is so important that Jesus himself posed it to his disciples. We see this in Matthew uh, 16. He asked them, Matthew 16 at verse 13, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And he asked this question because the, the surrounding culture of their day did not see Jesus as deity. Deity meaning as divine, as God. They saw him, some said John the Baptist, or some say Jeremiah. Uh, Mark and Luke's account mentioned Elijah. Or some say one of the prophets. So Jesus was asking them, hey, what do people say about me? You're out in the public. You're out in the public square. You, you go around ministering with me. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Some just say he's one of the prophets. Do you know people say that about Jesus now? That they deny the deity of Christ as God, but rather they accept the, quote, teachings of Christ. That he was a good moral teacher that, you know, he taught the golden rule. He talked about loving people, loving the, quote, uh, marginalized groups as as people add to scripture, you know, they, they, they speak of Jesus as some type of pacifist. They don't speak of him as the God man, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. They speak of him as a little pansy. They say they accept the moral teachings of Christ, but they don't accept the teaching to repent <laughs> and turn from their sins. They don't accept their teaching. 
but they accept all the other ones that are used out of context. So the same question was in this day. So while this is what other people said, Jesus was more concerned by what they, the 12, said. Because he asked them in verse 15 of Matthew 16, Who do you say that I am? Who do you, my disciples, my, my followers, the ones who are called out to follow me, who do you say that I am? And I ask you this question, Christian. Who do you say that Jesus is? Again, what you think about God says everything about you. So Jesus asked his disciples, who do you, okay? I know what the world thinks. I know what the pagans think. I know what the Buddhists and the Hindus and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons uh, and, the, and the atheists and the agnostics. I, I know what they think. I know what the secularists think. But who do you, Christian, who do you, follower of Christ, say that he is? Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. That's what Christ means. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter's confession was affirmed by Christ himself as being the only one that God the Father revealed to him. He said, uh, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He didn't know that just by common knowledge. Okay? And Christ would build his church on this truth that he is the Messiah. Because he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. What rock did he build on the rock that he is the Christ? He is the Messiah of God, the one sent of God. So if someone asks you, an unbeliever, who is Jesus Christ? What would be your answer? What would be your proof text? That's something to think about. Not the cultural view of Jesus that, that people have, but the biblical view, the, the right view. So as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday, today we're going to examine the who's of Jesus. And one of the most controversial claims of Jesus in the Gospels, as we just read, is that he is God, his claim to be deity, his claim to be God. Because to those who didn't receive him as Emmanuel, God with us, or as the Messiah, the one sent of God, for him to claim to be God was the same as blasphemy. It was blasphemy. And those who committed the sin of blasphemy, they were to be stoned according to Levitical law. When Jesus in John 10, verses 32-33, he said that he and the Father are one. The Jews, the Bible says, the Jews took up stones to stone him. Why? Because he was claiming to be God. <coughs> he did say he was God because guess what? He is God. But when he said, I and the Father are one, the scripture says the Jews took up stones. That means they were angry. They were in such rage that he claimed to be God that they took up stones to stone him. Because that's what the Levitical law said, that those who blaspheme the name of the Lord shall be put to death 
bastoni. But the Jewish leaders should have known that Jesus was God. So they said, because you being a man, make yourself God. And it's sad to say that even to this day, you have so-called Jehovah's Witnesses, because they're not Jehovah's Witnesses, and other false sects and cults of Christianity that do not attribute to Jesus the title of God. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the deity of Christ as God. And all the other false religions don't either. And their condemnation is going to be great on the day of judgment when they face this very God whose throne they're going to have to stand before and give an account for their rejection of him. He's going to say to them in that day, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. That's in, I think, Matthew 25 and around the 40th, 41st verse. He's going to tell them, depart from me. <coughs> you cursed. Why? Because they denied that he was God. So the question I asked this morning, is Jesus God? Is he God to you? Is he God in your life? Is he God in your home? Is he God in all areas of your life? That's the question that we want to ponder this morning. So the big idea is, as God, Jesus has the names of God given to him. He has the attributes of God ascribed to him and the works of God done by him. So let's look at these, these principles first. How do we know that Jesus is God? Because the names of God are given to him. First John 5 and 20. John says, this is the true God and eternal life. Paul said in Romans 9 and 5, of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Hebrews 1 and 8 calls Jesus God. <laughs> Simply put. In the Old and New Testament, you know, he is called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? Who with us? God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. We see that in Isaiah 7 and 14 and Matthew 1 and 23. That Jesus is God with us. Paul says God was manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3 and 16. The prophet Isaiah called him the mighty God and the everlasting Father in, in Isaiah 9 and 6 and the Prince of Peace. But one of them was the mighty God. Acts 10 36 in Peter's great sermon after his encounter with Cornelius. He says that Jesus is Lord of all. Paul says he is the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2 and 8. 
Isaiah and Joel the prophet call him by the name Jehovah that's the covenant God of Israel he is called Jehovah he is God's salvation to come we see that in the gospel of Luke The Bible styles our Savior as God, the true God, the God blessed forever, the Lord of all, the Lord of glory, God with us, Jehovah, and the Lord of hosts. This language that we see in Scripture is used by prophets and the apostles, both Old and New Testament. Because we have to understand this about Christ. Christ didn't just come onto the scene in that manger in the little town of Bethlehem of Judea no Christ always was he always was he was always God he is always God he didn't stop being God when he went into that grave he is God John 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word what was God he's God he always has been before his birth at his birth his ascension into glory he has always been God so the application of this principle is that since Christ has the names of God he is unto us God himself. And because he is God himself, he alone is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our adoration. We are to adore him because of this truth. He's worthy of our praise and he is worthy of our honor. And he is always praiseworthy. It makes me think about the end of Psalm 106 that that we read this morning where the psalmist said blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say amen praise the Lord why because God alone is worthy of praise and because he is God because Christ is God guess what he is always worthy there's never a time when he is not amen our next principle the attributes of God are ascribed to him. If Jesus is God, then he has the same attributes as God. <clears throat> Only an eternal God can give eternal life. Think about that. Christ said, he who believes in me will have what? Eternal life. Only he could say that because he's what? He's eternal. I can't give you eternal life. <laughs> I can wish that you could live forever. I can wish that I can live forever. But I don't have that power because I'm not eternal. Jesus alone is eternal. Eternity is, is, is one of his perfections. John Grudem said in his book, Systematic, Systematic Theology, he said, God has no beginning, 
no end or succession of memories in his own being. Or, or, I'm sorry, or succession of moments in his own being. And he sees all time equally. Yet God sees events in time and acts in time. Excuse me. John 1 and 1 tells us from the beginning. And I just quoted it. In the beginning was the word. And I always think about this. John the Baptist was born six months before Christ. John the Baptist was born six months before Christ, but yet he said of Christ, he was before me. He said this in John 1 and 15. How can someone be before someone who was born after someone? He was six months older than Christ, yet he said he was before me. How else did he exert his eternity? He said in John 8 and 58, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed deity. More than 60 years after he ascended, at the close of the New Testament, Revelation 22 and 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That means he is eternal. Eternity is one of his attributes. A.W. Tozer said, He who in himself the Alpha, rather he who is himself the Alpha, the first, the beginning, must be self-existent, independent, and eternal. Surely he who can truly thus speak of himself is divine. Another attribute we see is that Jesus is omnipresent. The prefix omni means all, coupled with the word present, meaning that he is all present. He is present in all places at the same time. In dictionary theological terms, it says God's presence in every point of space with his whole being. That's what it means to be omnipresent. In other words, it's not like part of God is over here and part of God is over there. No. God, all of God is, is everywhere at all times. That's hard for us to comprehend because we can only be in one place at one time, right? But all of God is in all places at all times. That's what it means to be omnipresent. Jesus said in Matthew 18 and 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, what? There I am in the midst So that means that he is omnipresent. He said in Matthew 28 and 20, Lo, I am with you what? Always. Even until the end of the age or the end of the world. That's a natural always and a spiritual always. Jesus is always present. I am with you always that is such a comforting fact for us or at least it should be he is omniscient again omni all 
Science is where we get the word science from. Omniscience, all-knowing. The word science means knowledge. That's all it means, uh, basically. He is all-knowing. Lord, thou knowest all things. That was Peter's cry. When Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord. He said, feed my sheep. That's him a second time. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He says, tend to my flock. And then Jesus asked him a third time. I guess Peter got kind of exacerbated after that, like, really? Like, bruh, you know, <laughs> you going to ask me a third time? You know, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. He acknowledged the omniscience of Christ. John said earlier in his gospel that Jesus knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That's John uh, 2, 24 through 25. In Revelation, John's Revelation, he said, All the churches shall know that I am he who searched the reins and hearts. Jesus said in John 10 and 15, As the Father knows me, so even I know the Father. Jesus is all-knowing. He knows all. Another attribute is immutability. Immutability means uh, not being able to change or to mutate. It is ascribed to Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 102, Thou art the same, and your years do not fail. That was a messianic psalm referring to Christ. That he is the same, and that his years shall not fail. That Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27 speak of that. The author in the book of Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same, when, yesterday, today, and forever. That's immutability. He does not change. He does not change. Then you have omnipotence. He's all powerful. The Dictionary of Theological Terms says the all powerfulness of God, his unlimited ability to act according to his own perfect will. Christ is all powerful. He has power over everything. Paul says this. He says our Conversation is in heaven from where we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. According to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. He said this in Philippians, the third chapter, that Christ is able. He's going to be powerful enough to change our sinful bodies from a corruptible body to an incorruptible body to be fashioned like he is. 
Christ says in Revelation 1 and 8, of course, again, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He is Almighty, meaning he's, he's all-powerful. All-powerful. Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead. Here in John 5, he says, Wherever so things he does, these also the Son does likewise. He's speaking of God. He says, For as the Father raises up the dead and gives them life, even so the Son quickens whom he will. And we saw that demonstrated as it is chronicled in John 11 chapter when Jesus told Lazarus, he said three words. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? He came forth. Why? Because he is all powerful. He showed his power as God in healing the sick, in raising the dead, in making the lame to walk. That's what those healings and miracles were about. They were to show his deity as God because only God could do those things. That was the purpose of the miracles. It wasn't for Jesus to show up and show out. <laughs> no, it was to show that he is God indeed. That he is God the Father. That he and the Father are one. That he came to do the will of the Father. That is why he performed those miracles. To show his power over creation. That's why he took those two small fish and five little loaves and fed over 5,000 people, by the way. Estimates are up to 10, 11,000 because you think of the women and the children. But he was showing his power over creation and created things. Why? Because he is the one who created all these things. But Jesus has irresistible power. He has divine power because he is God. So what can we learn from this? Since Jesus is eternal, since he has all these attributes, he will forever be faithful to who he is. He will always be with us in his presence, with his presence. Every single moment of our lives are under his watchful eye. He will never change who he is or what he says. He will never change who he is. He will never change what he says. Man, and he is more than strong enough to keep those whom he has called to salvation. Jesus said that he would never lose any of his, any of the sheep. He loses none that the Father has given him. Why? Because he is all-powerful. Christian, if you are saved today, guess what? You have no reason to worry that the strong hand of Christ won't keep you. No matter what comes up against you in your life, no matter who comes up against you, guess what? You are held tight. You know, it's like the song we sung, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Why do we do that? Because we know that his arms will never change that. Christ will always do what? Hold us. He will always keep us. He will always protect us from ultimate harm. Always. 
we have to remember this about Christ. I think that we don't do it enough, especially in times of distress. Because in our sinful minds, we think that somehow we've done something wrong and God has abandoned us. That he's somehow punishing us. No. That's a wrong view of the cross. We're going to look at that next week. God, who did God punish for us? He punished his son, Jesus Christ. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement, you know what it means to chastise? To, to, to spank, to whip. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon who? Him. God doesn't punish the elect. That's something that we should always know when we think about these attributes. That God is faithful. If he's not going to punish you as his elect, he's not going to punish you. Now, we have to, and don't confuse that with the consequences of our sins. That's different. That's not punishment. Okay? Punishment is a judicial act. Is act done by a by a judge, like a a judge condemns someone, they sentence them to to so many years in prison or so many months in prison. That's punishment. It is a judicial act. <coughs> God created. I'm not not God created. God made a judicial act through the cross by punishing, laying our penalty on someone else. He laid the penalty for our sins on who? Christ. Christ paid that penalty so that we wouldn't have to. That's substitutionary death of Christ. So because of that, when we think about all these attributes, no matter what happens to us, no matter what befalls us, we're confident in knowing that Christ has not changed, that he will not change, that he cannot change, that if he says he will be with us, then by God, he's going to be with us. No matter how deep the valley gets, no matter how dark the nights are, no matter the challenges that we face in this fallen, wicked world, every single moment of our lives are under the watchful eye of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He does not change. He can't change. It's impossible for him to change. He will forever be faithful to who he is. And that's the hope that we get from knowing that Jesus is God, that he is not going to change, that he is always with us, and that he knows everything. Nothing that happens in our life catches God by surprise. Don't y'all know that? God's all like, whoops, I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, <laughs> he's not up in heaven pacing back and forth like, hmm. What am I going to do about this? I, I didn't know this was going to happen. Hmm. No, he doesn't do that. He already knows. And we can go to him in confidence. Isn't it good to know that somebody already knows? You feel more confident going to a person when they know. Like, they understand. You know, and we're like that with people sometimes. We, we go to people, we think, you know, they, they can kind of relate to us. You know, they've been through this before. But why do we forsake the one who suffered 
and who became like his brethren, as the writer in Hebrew says, who suffered as we do. Christ was man. He was fully man. He suffered as man. But he was also God. He's fully man, fully God. But he came in the flesh. He suffered as we suffered, yet he did not sin. So he knows how it feels to be you. His context was different, yes. But that doesn't mean he doesn't know why you feel the way you feel about things. Don't you know he knows our sin nature in and out? He knows our thoughts in and out. I mean, seriously, he knows. So because he knows, that should give us confidence. It's like the writer said in Hebrews 4. We don't serve a high priest who is not familiar with our sufferings. But he was in all ways tempted, yet he did not sin. Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, to your great high priest, Jesus Christ. Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and help in time of need. And as they say, on social media, I'm just going to let that sit right there. Let's go to our third principle. Amen. Hope this is encouraging to y'all. We learned that Jesus is God. The last thing is the works of God are done by Christ. We allude to that a little bit. John 1 again. All things were made by him. Him, he's speaking of Christ. All things were made by him. He performed the works of creation, Christ did. John says, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says in Colossians 1 and 16, by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities of power. All things were created by him and for him. Jesus also upholds, preserves, and governs. Isaiah 9 and 6, the government shall be upon his shoulders. No, he's not talking about the federal government, by the way. Excuse me. Paul says to the son the Father said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's Hebrews 1 and 8. Hebrews 1 and 3 says that he upholds all things by the power, by rather the word of his power. Colossians 1 and 17, by him all things consist. So Christ holds all things. He preserves all things. He governs all things. R.C. Sproul said this great quote right here. I love this. He says, all creatures from the smallest insect that is seen by the microscope up to the archangel that worships and ministers before the eternal throne, all events from the falling of a hair 
of the head to the wasting of nations by famine, pestilence, and war. All rule and authority from that of a petty official to that of thrones and principalities in heaven. The material universe from the least particle that floats in the sunbeam to the grandest system of worlds that roll in immensity. All hang dependent upon his powerful providence. He goes on to say, if one link in the chain of that dependence were broken, they will all rush headlong to destruction. He has always governed this world, and he shall ever hold the scepter over it until his last foe shall be done away with, and his last hidden one made victorious. Aussie Spoke famously said, there's not one rogue molecule in all the universe. Not one. A molecule is one of the smallest particles in all of creation. And it's not one rogue molecule out there. If one molecule goes rogue, then everything is destroyed. Christ also is the sole author of redemption. He is the sole author of redemption. He is the sole author of salvation. How can man be saved? Only through redemption, through Jesus Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ is the one who provides a way for us to be redeemed, to be brought back from slavery. Also, Christ claimed to exercise the power to pardon men's iniquities. He told the man in Luke 5 and 20, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. <coughs> he tells us in Matthew 9 and 6 that he spoke that we might know that, that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Only Christ has the power to do that. That's why we confess our sins to him. Next we see that Jesus Christ shall raise the dead. We talked about that earlier. In Deuteronomy 32 and 29, God himself said, I kill and I make alive. Jesus said in Revelation 1 and 8, I have the keys of hell and of death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 22 that in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus said in John the 10th chapter that he has the power to lay down his own life and he has the power to take it up again. So only Christ has the power to do that. That has to be attributed to God because no mere man can raise themselves from the dead. I don't think any of us can. Well, we can't. It's not, no, I don't think. None of us can raise ourselves from the dead, and we can't raise other people from the dead. I've been to many funerals and seen that demonstrated. People go up there to the casket and, you know, do all kinds of crazy things to bring their loved ones back. But guess what? Once they're pushing up daisies, that's it. 
But only Jesus can raise people from the dead. Only he has the power to do that. Also, Christ shall judge the living and the dead at his coming. He says in John 5 and 27 that God gave the son authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. John 5 and 22. The father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the son. So when people say only John, I mean, when people say only God can judge me, tell them you're lying. Jesus is the one who's going to judge you. It says that in John 5 and 22. Yeah, people with tattoos that say that only God can judge me. They don't really know what they're talking about, do they? They don't realize the implications of those words. Only God, yes, you're right. But how is he going to judge you? By what standard are you going to be judged? All judges rule by a certain standard. God's standard is going to be this right here. But God gave all the power of judgment to the son because all of us are going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged. He's going to judge the quick and the dead. That means the living and the dead. Revelation 1 and 7, John said these words, Behold, he's speaking of Christ, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. They're going to weep on that day when he comes back. Why? Because they know that he is coming back to judge so as far as application is concerned <coughs> since Christ created us we are bound to him forever we are under his charge and we are subject to him as our creator since he governs us and preserves and upholds us every single particle of this universe is under his control there is nothing that is not in his care and that includes us he told his disciples in Matthew 10 the very hairs on your head are what numbered he knows when two sparrows fall from the sky he knows when we're walking and we lose follicles of hair he knows that we don't know when we look in the mirror after a few years like hey my hair is not as thick as it used to be but he knows that already he knows the most intimate details about us as the author of redemption Christ is the only one who can save man from sin he is the only one who can set his love on us he is the only one who died for unjust people And since he pardons our iniquities, he is the one to whom we owe the greatest gratitude for forgiving us of our sins because, friends, we cannot carry around the weight of our sins. If you think you can, look at the cross. 
if you think you can afford to, or we think you can carry a, around the weight of your sin, look at the cross. The cross tells you you are wrong. Because your sins cost someone else. And it costs our Savior. Our sins put him on the cross. And since Christ has the power to raise the dead, we have the hope of a future resurrection. We have a hope of knowing that this world is not it. That although we perish, we die one day, we don't go to the great beyond. We don't go to the great nothing. No. We are awaiting the resurrection of the dead. When the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the hope that we have. That there's more to life than this. That this is not, you know, the old soap opera, one life to live. No. We don't have one life to live. We live twice. We're going to spend eternity in one of two places. And the fact that Jesus is going to raise the dead, that's the hope that we have. And as the judge of the living and the dead, every knee will bow before him. Both the unbeliever and the unbeliever will bow the knee to Christ. Paul says this, every knee will bow. Philippians 2, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And when he comes back, he will no longer be Savior. He will be judge. When Christ comes back, he's no longer Savior. Right now, he's seated on the right hand. He's still saving souls. But when he comes back, he will no longer be Savior. He will be judge. And he will say one of two things. He will say, come, Matthew 25 and 34. Or he will say, depart from me, Matthew 25 and 41. There's only going to be two verdicts. For the believers, for the saints, is going to be what? Come, enter in. Enter in. Come, you blessed of the Father. Come, you redeemed. Come, you elect. And be with the Father. And be with all the saints of old. In the great fellowship of all the saints. Or else he's going to say, depart from me, you curse, into the everlasting father with the devil. Where there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. In conclusion, if Jesus Christ is God, we can trust him with our whole life. We can't trust ourselves. We make a mess of our life, don't we? Amen. Christ will betray no interest that's committed to him. He invites all to come. He welcomes all who does come. He is all sufficient.
a Puritan once said, if I did not know my Savior to be God, I should this night lie down in despair. The scripture could in this case bring no comfort to my mind. It is important to know that Jesus is God and that we can trust him with our whole life. Next, if Jesus is God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a most reasonable duty. Christ is the rock. All of our hopes are built on him and nothing less. All throughout scripture, God has not ceased to stress this doctrine. That it is our most reasonable duty to have faith in him. And we cling to our faith in Christ as our last hope. That's the hope that we have. We pray and ask God to give saving faith, believing faith, and redeeming faith to all unbelievers. Because that's the faith that they're going to need. They're going to need saving faith. Lord, give our unsaved loved ones a saving faith, a believing faith, a redeeming faith. Because no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 and 3. In other words, they must believe in Christ. No one can call God Father except those who are his what? Children. And who are his children? The ones who have received Christ. John 1 tells us that. Those who have believed in his name. <coughs> and lastly, if Jesus is God, will we have him today as our Savior? We pray for unbelievers. <coughs> if they have been convicted of their sins, that they confess them and forsake their sins in repentance. That is our prayer for unbelievers, our unbelieving family members, unbelieving children, unbelieving friends. That they, if they have been convicted of their sins, and they have, that they confess and that they forsake their sins in repentance. Why? Because God is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins. He forgives all who turn to him in forgiveness. Because guess what? They need him. They need him now. They need him urgently. Every day that an unbeliever lives is a day closer to eternity spent in hell. For the believer, every day that passes by is a day closer to the day that Jesus comes back. And we'll be glad to see him on that day. Let us pray. Lord, we pray, we rejoice that you do not change. We pray, Lord, that you be unto us a sure foundation, a mighty fortress. Lord, you are the one who was and is and is to come. You are the Almighty. Lord, you are our glorious Redeemer. All that we have and all that we possess belongs to you. And Lord, we pray 
that as we've listened to the evidence from the scriptures that you are God that we know that we believe that we internalize Lord that you are God and that we take the applications to heart that you are God and as believers we have nothing to fear we have nothing to worry about the world tells us to look to ourselves the world even tells us to look to it but Lord we rather look to you may we continue to look to you may we continue to point others to you to the life of Christ the glorious life of Christ the sinless life of Christ the life of Christ as deity the life of Christ as God to your glory in Christ's name I pray amen